Well, sure, we know the major player projections are accurate, but how much do they vary within their general accuracy? I'll ask Ariel Cohen about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 11th. It's show number six of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday expert edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, Rotoballers, the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, and the ATC projection system. We'll talk about presenting the variations in player projections. We'll also talk about his early drafts, the data at baseball, and the effect of machine learning on having fun, his discussion with Brian Bannister, the Giants' director of pitching, and, of course, his boons and banes for the quickly arriving 2022 season. It's another Friday Big Expert Edition with Ariel Cohen. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have a CBA, and we're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Expert Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, Rotoballers, The Sleeper and the Bust podcast, and the ATC Projection System. Ariel, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's sure been a while. Yeah, it's been a little while, and thanks so much for having me once again. It's always a pleasure and an honor to uh, come on the on your radio show. How many drafts have you played so far this year, Ariel, and how many more are you going to draft? Uh, so I'm in eight leagues this year. Three of them are completed. Uh, we've got the Raz Slam Best Ball Competition, TGFBI, Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, uh, I did the uh, mixed auction for labor just this past week. And uh, a couple more. I've got tout head-to-head. I'm doing an NFBC auction. And then a couple of home leagues. So uh, some of them are going to be postponing their date, by the way, their draft date, uh, indefinitely, you know, until we get more information. And, and some of them are going to say, hey, uh, we're, we're just drafting now anyway. So I got a mix of everything. Well, Ariel, the lockout, thank goodness, is now over, and we're going to have a regular season starting on April 7th. But while you were drafting during the possibility of a shortened season, how did you change your strategy, or what strategy did you apply in auctions and drafts to account for the lockout? Yeah, I mean, if you're doing an auction, I would tell you that the better strategy in the short season, and we saw that because we had 2020 under our belt here, is to going middle-middle. The stars and scrubs approach does not work as well. Uh, the, the taking on more risk by going large and small doesn't work as much as just getting steady production. So uh, I advise you, especially for the hitting. Pitching, you can probably tilt a little bit more stars and scrubs, but for the hitting, you should be going middle-middle. Um, and in draft, same thing. You should be really focusing on getting a lot of hitters out of the early middle rounds uh, just to, to combat risk. And, of course, you know because there's the short season, a lot of things are going to change. You know, I, I know that, uh, you know, Ronald Acuna, for example, who is coming into the season injured, you know, he's going to be having an, another month to rest. He might be able to steal more bases compared to the overall total that we previously expected. So a guy like him, you want to push up in your ranks. Uh, even a guy like, you know, Jacob DeGrum, Carlos Rodon, a couple guys like that that I took in, in my mixed uh, labor auction, you know, 
they don't have to pitch for six whole months in, in the uh, in a shorter season to to have great value. I mean, if they pitch four months and last that long, uh, that could be the vast majority of what would be this season this year. So you, know, you could take a little bit more risk on guys who don't have to last as long or have a guys like uh, young guys like Pablo Lopez, Shane Boz, pitch pitchers who have innings limits, who you know the team is not going to let them pitch more than X. Well, that X now isn't com- compared to a 162-game season. You might have to compare them to a 140-game season, and now they have a larger percentage of the playing time. So uh, you know guys like that might be pushed up, things like that. Ariel, we'll talk a little later in detail about how you're allocating risk or describing risk in your projections for people to understand how much variability there is. But it seems to me that the amount of risk would widen if the season were shorter. How much difference does the shortness of a season make in establishing those risk profiles? There's different types of risk we're talking about. What you're referring to right there is known as process risk. And it's where, you know, if a player's true talent is, is to hit 30 homers, you know, if, if there were technically, you know, 10 million games somehow in 2022, uh, this would be, uh, you know, you would be more sure that he would reach some overall average. However, when you're dealing with a shorter season, the smaller the sample size, the more variations you can get. You know, a guy gets injured, it affects the time. A uh, guy goes on a hot streak for a longer period. A guy, uh, uh, you know, who, who knows what, what can happen in a shorter season. So you, you have more process risk. Uh, that you really can't get away from. I mean, things happen. You just have to be able to deal with taking on overall less risk in general. I mean, the things that I deal with ATC are more about parameter risk where, you know, what actually is the true talent of a player? I heard you say somewhere during your preseason media blitz that taking Salvador Perez in the second round of a large roster best ball draft was not only defensible, but kind of mandatory. Why did you say that? In a best ball format, you know, we're talking about points. It's not categories. So stolen bases, you don't have to get stolen bases. They certainly count, but it's not like you have to get them in, in, to crunch your roster. You know, it, it, Salvador Perez doesn't steal anything. I might think twice about taking him that early in a regular league where categories count, but in a best ball, no problem. Plus the the uh, player bump, the replacement level bump in, in a best ball league is a lot larger for catchers, so that really bumps him up. But in general, you know, the point about uh, taking him in a draft and a hold, you know, if you know, one of the reasons why you worry about taking a catcher so early is that the replacement level in a waiver wire is so low. Like if if Salvador Perez gets hurt, who in the who's replacing him? You you're dealing with terrible talent. But of course, if you can't replace him because you're in a you're in a uh, draft and hold where there's no waiver wire, well, you don't have to worry about that risk. You, you, whoever your catcher is, you're not going to replace. Whoever your player is, you're not going to replace. So, uh, you know, you have since you have to worry about that less, you can take a chance on rostering him a little bit earlier than than you would in a waiver wire league. And of course, in those best ball draft and hold type formats, the rosters are greatly expanded because there's no moves. And uh, as a result, in Raz Slam, we had 40-man rosters. Some of the draft champions, I believe, are 50-man rosters. So I think the key there might be make sure that you have every position relatively strongly backed up so that if you lose a Salvador Perez to injury, then you're not going to lose the stats from the slot. I think it's really important to understand that it's the slots that are generating the outcomes, not the players. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, whoever you roster very early in one of those formats, you do want to uh, meet up with quantity later. I mean, I, I took an extra catcher just to balance the fact that, hey, I've got Salvador Perez in the second round, so I need to back him up with, you know, a couple more options. And if I took a, a third baseman in the top round or so, you also would want to back them up with some uh, with a couple of, a quantity more uh, in your uh, in your reserve rounds of a baseball format. Whether in your own drafts or following coverage in the media, what have you seen this draft season that has surprised you or at least raised an eyebrow? I definitely heard your past guest talking that, you know, closers are going uh, a lot earlier than usual. And, you know, that does make sense because of both the lockout that we don't have. We have a couple of free agents that are not signed. It's not steady. We haven't seen spring training to know how position battles working out. You know, and because overall in baseball, the role has changed. There's more closer by committees. Better pitchers are being used more in high leverage roles. So because there's more uncertainty in the closers and there are a few, quote, safer. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what that means, but a little bit safer, if you will, closers, you know, they are pushed up. Uh, that I noticed. You know, starting pitching continues to be pushed up, uh, you know, a lot more, and maybe not even rightfully so this year. There's a lot of risk at the very elite. I'm not sure you're going to get that certainty that we have in the past couple of years, but we still see starting pitching pushed up. We see steals pushed up uh, as they're scarce. I have seen catchers uh, the the elite catchers Perez, Real Muto, Smith. They're going really early. They're going. They're almost all gone by round four, which that that is a little bit eye popping. Uh, otherwise, you know, pretty pretty largely steady state. I mean, I have seen in drafts. You know, the question is, you know, people are taking shots on Justin Verlander very early, which I think is probably a lot for a thirty nine year old Tommy John surgery returnee. There's always a question of Trevor Bauer. How in the world do you price him? So, you know, the things pop up this year. Nothing too eyebrows raising other than, you know, the, the closers and the starting pitcher trends that I mentioned earlier. Have you noticed any other trends or situations going on in drafts that you think maybe drafters might still be missing? Um, you know, I think that uh, at the outfield is something that needs to be addressed sooner, particularly in deeper leagues. When you have five outfielders in a 15-team mixed league or deeper, outfield dries up quite a bit faster than it used to. I mean, uh, if I'm looking at, uh, I calculate Z-scores, the replacement level Z-score historically was around negative 2.7, 2.8, you know, high, low, negative to twos. But now they're they're in the threes already, and actually they're approaching almost high negative threes. Um, that means that, you know, if the replacement level is lower, you really should be pushing them up more. You should be rostering more outfielders earlier. And the reason for that is that baseball is filled with a lot more platoons than it used to be. You know, you got teams like the like the Rays, teams like the Giants, where there's one or two outfield spots that they have that aren't just being filled with regular players. You know, they're being platooned, righty-lefty combo or defensive purposes. So they're getting less at fewer at-bats. And, of course, this game is a lot about predicting the most at-bats. And when you have people in that fifth outfielder tier that aren't getting that, uh, their value is lower. So I think people are missing out on an opportunity to draft outfielders much higher up and you know, let some of those corner positions or middle infield positions or some pitchers, let them go later and really stock up on some of your outfielders a little bit earlier than you think. 
It seems, though, Ariel, that a lot of teams over the last few years especially, and one would expect perhaps into the future, are using the DH spot to allow their outfielders, their fourth outfielders, and some other reserves to rotate into the regular batting lineup so that they're not being cut off entirely from access to playing time. And, of course, the DH now going to be a thing in the National League. So is there a little more comfort in taking those fourth type outfielders because they might have a path to playing time through the availability of the DH rotation? Yeah, I mean, we're talking literally about 15 NL teams here with a little bit more playing time to distribute. A lot of that could go to a certain player like, you know, Will Smith, the catcher on on the Giant on the Dodgers. Uh, Real Muto on the Phillies, maybe Contreras. You know, so there's a couple of catchers who bump up. Maybe you get a guy like Dominic Smith on the Mets who gets bumped up. So th- there are a couple of situations where the players, there's certain players that will get more. Um, I think that's going to be the case more than having more just distributed to the fourth outfielders. Like I, I, I wouldn't really uh, base my fantasy decisions later on and saying, well, now there's a DH, so uh, Rafael Ortega is going to get more playing time. I, I think it's going to go more to a person. But yeah, to the extent that uh, to the extent that there are more at bats, the penetration level is a little bit higher. Like there, there's more value in the hitting later on. So you know the the fifth outfielder probably improves slightly. Uh, but still, I think my point is valid that uh, you're, the effect of the platooning in general in baseball is still going to counteract it that, uh, you know, compared to some five, six, seven years ago, you should be taking outfielders much higher than you think. I'm going to presume that since you rely pretty heavily on your own projections in planning your draft strategy, but once the battle is joined, how much do you rely on your projections versus the game theory, the situation at the table in the moment, adjusting to the room, that kind of thing, even gut feel based on your own extensive draft experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of the game theory and adjusting to the room versus uh, the projections, uh, it's really, they're really... There's nothing. There's no competition there. You know, you're using the projections as the backbone of all your information. You're setting your original initial values of, all right, here are my projections, and how you actually acquire the players, and when you take them, and what order you do, and how you construct the roster. You know, that is the game theory and the room. You know, to know that, well, I got to take a second base now. Um, versus taking an outfielder now or doing something later, or I need a pitcher, or, oh, look, there's a closer run going to be. I better preempt it. I mean, that's the, that's the game. That has nothing to do with projections. You can have closer runs in the fourth round, in the seventh round, and you know projections won't tell you exactly when that's going to go in any single draft. Every single draft is very different. So I think those are two. But as far as you know, my gut feel based on uh, you know uh, my gut feel of of how I'm going to alter my projections. Yeah, that sometimes happens. Sometimes I see the ATC projections and I say, you know, I think these at-bats are low. Like I see Marcelo Zuna, who's projected for only about 450 at-bats, and I say to myself, wait a minute, you know, he's going to be back right away. Brian Snitker said the Braves are going to welcome him back. I kind of think that the projections are light. Uh, my own projections, but I kind of think that it's light. Uh, so I'll be drafting him with the mindset of he's going to get 500 at-bats. Uh, I do that all the time. In general, you should not do that 
very often, and you should not do that really for rates, you know, homers per at-bat. But in playing time, the human eye can detect a few more things. You can have more manual information that is not in the projections. There are a lot of blind spots in projections, and if you know what they are, then you can adjust how you draft and, you know, circumvent some of the uh, things that, that projections aren't great at. Well, of course, everybody who's drafting has to be aware of the news. We can agree on that. But, Ariel, how much variation in your strategy arises from the format of the game itself? You've drafted uh, best ball deep rosters. You've drafted snake drafts. And uh, just the other night, you drafted auction. How do those different formats affect the development and execution of your strategies? You know, the projections don't change uh, from from uh, from uh, draft to draft. Obviously, if I really value play, a player highly in one format, chances are they're going to be more valued compared to the market in another. But every draft and every draw auction is different. Um, I like to, going into every single uh, auction or draft that I do, come up with a plan and to tackle where I think the weak spots are. If I think that, hey, I think bargains can be found in the corner infield spot later on, uh, it might be true in a draft, but it's not in an auction. Uh, auctions and drafts are different inherently, right? Uh, in a draft, you have to take a first round or you have to take a second, you have to take a third. You don't have to do that in, in an auction. I generally don't take a first-round player in an auction because I think that there are better ways to compile a team that, that will give me more overall value. So everything has to be considered different. Every format is different. And, you know, even I'll tell you the funny thing. You know, even if I'm playing an NFBC format, if I'm in three NFBC leagues, uh, it might be different depending upon who the people are. If you know the people in the room are big on pitching, if you know there's a certain player that a certain person likes, that's going to affect what you do. So I, everything has to be treated differently, and although I have the same methodology and the same basic principle, uh, I like to come up with my own individual plans for every single one of them. Do your plans generally include specific players? Are you targeting specific players as you head into a draft? I don't look at any player and saying, I have to get that player. I look at players and say, I'm more likely to get a certain player because I think that the market doesn't value them. Or maybe there's a player that I think will, uh, that is more important to get on my roster for uh, roster construction purposes. So maybe I'll go the extra dollar to get a player. And if that's the case, maybe I have a higher chance of getting him. But I don't have player targets. Oh, I really like that player this year. I mean, it, I, I price every single player. I risk adjust every price every single player. And I'm indifferent to getting, uh, in theory, I'm indifferent to getting any player as long as they're properly priced. You know, when I, when I, did uh, TGFBI, uh, I'm sorry, a Raz Slam, uh, I got Byron Buxton. <laughs> I, I had never had any idea. I, Byron Buxton, really? That That's a guy for me. But yet it came up and it was the right spot and it was more cheaply priced than I thought. And so he's a value, then I take him. Um, I don't throw away any player. I don't uh, uh, acquire any player that I want. I shouldn't say about throwing away any player. There are certain players with injury risk or certain risks that I just don't want on my roster. That could be true. But no, I, I don't target any player. If the player is too expensive, I don't get him. doesn't matter what the format. I've been hearing a lot of experts say that one of the steps that you can take to simplify your role or simplify your job at the draft table is take the entire universe of players and cross off some of them, the guys you are 100% sure or 99% sure that you're just not going to want at the draft and not think about them. Do you take an approach like that? Where do you stand on just 
dropping certain players from consideration. I mean, I think everyone does that in some way or form. If if you see a player and you say you see a risk on a player, like take Jacob Degrom, is Jacob Degrom healthy? Who knows? We don't know. You know, there's certain you're going to devalue him in a certain way, and maybe for Jacob Degrom, you say, okay, he's a player that I have no interest in taking anywhere in the first seven rounds, right? And if that's the case. You know, you're essentially throwing that player away because he's going in the second round of drafts, right? So there's no need to think about a player. You know, any player that you really devalue that much, you don't want to consider. You just throw him away quickly. Let's not spend time thinking about him. Let's focus on the players we want. So everyone's doing that in a certain way. But, of course, it goes the other way, right? If Jacob deGrom somehow is available in the 19th round, even if you previously said, oh, my God, the risk is too much, I think in the 19th round, you would take a pick. So, you know, there's always a, a there's always a possibility to take a player. There's always a possibility not to take a player. But, in you know, if, if you're preparing for a, a draft and time is sensitive, you're certainly going to throw away a good percentage of the players just being that they're way overvalued. Uh, I don't think it's smart to completely get rid of a player based on anything. Uh, I think that you need to risk adjust and properly price each player. Just to say, I don't like taking players in the first year of a contract. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't take a player. Maybe you take, maybe there's a risk assessment and you say, okay, I got to devalue them two rounds, but never, I wouldn't throw away a player like that. I understand that because you're a scientific guy and you approach these things very methodically and intellectually, But I'm wondering, do you ever just have a player that you look at him for intangible reasons and say, this is a guy I don't want on my team? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, in shorthand. But what you're actually doing is you're making a risk adjustment to the price. right? If if you price a guy to be a sixth-round player uh, and what projections say, but you feel like, well, I don't really feel it's right. I think he's going to miss time. I think his homers are way too much. What you're doing is you're taking that projection and you're making a risk adjustment. You're saying, I got to knock 20%, 25% off the price because I don't really believe those numbers. I believe something lower. So I think, I think everyone's doing that in their mind. Uh, but what you're really doing is you're risk adjusting the price. Right? The price of a player is, is what? It's, it's some projected stats minus some kind of risk adjustment or plus maybe there's there's category reasons to take a player and that adds to uh, uh, your strike price so you know as long as you think of thing uh, uh, as long as you think of prices as risk adjusted prices and as strike prices not inherent value because there really is no inherent value right what what is to say that a player is $20 it's not a real thing but it's a risk adjustment for a strike price is is what really I'm getting at here you're listening to baseball HQ radio Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, uh, Roto Ballers, the very fine Beat the Shift podcast, and of course the ATC projections. And Ariel, you led a panel called Data in Baseball at PitchCon recently with Jeremy Frank and Jeremy Siegel. A couple of guys, I looked at them and I thought, boy, this game is getting much younger. They're a lot younger than, uh, than me, that's for sure. And you started by asking them about the effects on baseball of having more and more advanced data and more and more granular data. Uh, What was the consensus? Well, I guess it means I'm older if uh, you're comparing me to a couple of younger guys there. But uh, but anyways, uh, you look you know, younger when I compare you to me. <laughs> Maybe that's true. Uh, but you know, in, in terms of of having more and more granular data and the heavy analytics, you know, there are there are really positive and negative effects. 
Uh, I mean, you know, certainly you get better information. Teams can be way more efficient. We've seen that, and sure, in, in ways that there are. You know, personally, I think that there are very a lot of disadvantages. You know, sure, okay, it's telling you that you shouldn't steal that many bases. I don't know. Stolen bases are kind of fun to watch. From an entertainment perspective, I kind of like it. Well, you should have the shift, and that's going to cut down hits. I don't know. I think the hits and the scoring, that adds to the entertainment. Uh, so good in some ways, uh, more efficient, but I think that to the fans, uh, I'm not sure that the game is going in the right direction in that. Uh, it's hard to stop teams from doing that, but I don't know when it's all said and done, Patrick, are, are, are you happy that there's less of a run environment, that there's less steals? Uh, are, are you happier or, or, or less happy with the game compared to like 25 years ago? I think I speak for all baseball fans, young and old, that, Perhaps the focus on data and the use of data to optimize uh, winning strategies has had a deleterious effect on the entertainment value of the game because the three true outcomes, home run, strikeout, base on balls, nothing's happening. And a lot of fans find it kind of boring to watch, and I wonder if the relentless optimization of winning strategy has had a negative effect on the optimization of entertainment and fun going to the games and watching them. Yeah, I mean, two things. Well, first of all, you know, I I play a game with my wife uh, on Saturday afternoons called uh, Ticket to Ride, uh, U.S. version I play a lot. And it's uh, you can look it up. It's a game where, you know, you get cards and you make trains and there's routes and destinations. And... I, I found that uh, there's an optimal way to play. It's, you know, you get a certain route is very important, and you pick up some destination cards before you even have the routes and wh- whatever it is. But, you know, when you figure out the optimal way to play and everybody's then playing the optimal way to play, the game is less fun. You end up having almost the same route. You end up competing for the same exact route. It, it doesn't make a funner game, the fact that you know how to win, right? Uh, so uh, I'm in agreement with this, you know. And, and, and for marketing purposes, I think it, it's really hurting them because, you know, you want to have a recognizable player. Oh, here's the shortstop of this team. Here's the right fielder of this team. The less and less you have that, the more you do platoons and mixing and matching, I don't know. There's less recognizable people. It's harder to market. So I'm not sure that it even helps baseball from a marketing standpoint as well. Well, I agree with you, Ariel. And I think the solution eventually is going to have to be some kind of de-juicing of the baseball to force the the offenses into doing more slap hitting, getting single stealing bases, trying to go for that extra base, those kind of things, all of which are what... Uh, fans have apparently told Major League Baseball they want to see. They want to see the ball in play. They want to see these kind of exciting running plays. They want to see these exciting fielding plays. And if the ball is juiced to the extent that a lot of guys can hit 35 or 40 home runs, that's going to not be the case. It's going to be less entertaining. And it's going to have an effect on fantasy, too. Uh, We're already seeing that the reduced amount of stolen bases means we all have to chase stolen bases early, even though the players that we sometimes target to get those stolen bases aren't really good, well-rounded ball players. Where do you think this goes in the future? Yeah, and by the way, you know the the 
you know, people are hesitant to, oh, ban the shift or people are hesitant. Let's not have larger bases to make stolen bases just a little bit more enticing. You know, take a sport like basketball. You know, there there's a rule called the three second rule, three second violation, where you you have the scent. You can't be in the same area in the paint for more than three seconds. I mean, they did that rule to prevent some big guy from just standing there and just standing there and, you know, just hitting the basket. You know, it's okay for a sport to make some rules to make it a little bit more entertaining to to kill some ridiculous advantages. I'm playing pickleball these days, and there's something called the two-bounce rule, you know, where you have to let the ball bounce twice. Why do you have to let it bounce twice? Why can't you hit it after the first one? Well, because it's ridiculous if you hit it on, on, on the first one. It changes the game. So I... I'm all for baseball making a rule that makes the game more watchable and cuts out some advantage that that's being there. I I don't really get the naysayers who say no, you can let the players play wherever they want. Why are you changing that? I think that if if the, if it makes it if it kills some advantage that's hurting the sport, I don't think there's anything wrong. The same basketball did that too. You know, football constantly changes rules to think that uh, hey, we got to put a little bit more. You know, the, the two point conversion was put in. You know, makes it a little bit more interesting. There's nothing wrong with doing that at all. Well, I heard you say to the two Jeremys in your PitchCon presentation that the shift is within the rules after all, and it's not new. It's just more extreme than it used to be. But it seems that the way to beat the shift is to tell hitters to slap the ball the other way until the shift becomes suboptimal in winning strategy. And at that point, the shift will stop being such a big part of the game, and we can all go back to having maybe a little more fun. Yeah, that I just don't understand. Like, if, if if you're a lefty hitter and you got nobody all the way from third base to second base, why in the world wouldn't you, at least to keep at least to keep it honest, why wouldn't you every so often, but even if it's an out, just to do it enough so that the players don't overshift you? Like, I, I can't understand the analytics of why that's not recommended. Are the players really just that bad in bunting? Seems like a two-week training course in the offseason on bunting might help. Like, I, 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 that I just don't get. Uh, to me, that's such an obvious thing. You know, given the rules, all right. Just bunt. There's nobody there. I mean, if, if I'm a righty hitter and, and I'm playing, and I tend to pull these days in softball, I will at the very first at bat, I will just whatever it is, even if I get out, I'll try to poke it to right, just so that the very next at bat and for future at bats, everybody is moving all the way over, and now I can do my pull happy thing. Like the keep honest play to me seems like the right play. I have no idea why we don't see that more often. That just boggles my mind. I'd be willing to bet that the reason that uh, players don't try to slap the ball the other way and just get aboard is because home runs are still where the money is. And as long as that's the case, it's going to be very difficult to tell a player, look, don't try to hit a home run, just poke it up third base and get on, because he thinks to himself, yeah, you would say that because it's going to cost me millions of dollars over my career. But then I look at a guy like Joey Gallo, and I've seen him multiple times just tap the ball down towards third and get an easy base hit. And I think to myself, well, Joey Gallo's big knock is that uh, even though he has a very high on-base percentage, he has a really low batting average. And if he got 10, 20 more hits a year by doing that, his overall profile would look a lot better. And uh, gosh, if he had a bit more leg speed, he might even be able to stretch some of those into a double because, uh, you know, if he tapped it just past third, it takes a long time for the pitcher to run over there and make the play on the ball. Yeah, I mean... uh... You know, that's part of the fun of being a fantasy analyst is to say, hmm, if if there's going to be a ban on the shift, 
who's more valuable? And sure, Joey Gallo's there. I, I was drafting in TGFBI, and I had a decision of a couple of outfielders, and one of them was Joey Gallo. And I don't know. It pushed me in the direction of, what the heck? Let's take a chance that he gets a, a little bit better batting average, and then he's worth more than the others at the same choice. So uh, I think it's fun from an, an intellectual standpoint, too. You guys discuss machine learning, and one of the Jeremys said the challenge and the opportunity isn't having enough data, but making sense of all the data. And that also seems to me to be the challenge and the opportunity for fantasy baseball players with player projections. But I guess the question is, how far away is the application of machine learning to improving the performance of projection systems? Yeah, I mean, uh, just for, for those who are not familiar with machine learning, you know, the, the old computer way of solving something, of, let's take the simple question of, you know, is this, you know, you show a computer a picture, is this a, a picture of a dog, right? How does a computer recognize a dog? And yeah, you can give it some rules. All right, it's got to have two eyes, got to have a nose, a tail, it's got to be a certain shade, it's got to, I mean, well, if you include audio, it's got to say woof, you know. Um, that's, that's the old way uh, of doing it. And that works a little bit, but you know, the more complicated and the more different things that you have to get distinct uh, doesn't work as well. And you'd have to have such good rules in, in the world to, to, to do that. I mean, the human brain doesn't do that either, right? When we look at something, we sort of identify, oh, I, it looks, you remember, oh, it looks like something else and you identify it. And that's what machine learning is. I mean, basically what we do is we feed millions of pictures to the computer of dogs. We say, these million pictures, these are dogs. These million pictures, these are cats. These million pictures, these are pictures of Patrick Davitt. And and you basically, you know, you, you, you tell the computer, okay, now take your new picture, and how similar is it to which cohort? Is it similar to the dogs? Is it similar to the cats? Or is it similar to Patrick Davitt? And then you get a... You get, you know, my pick is this with an accuracy of this. I have a, I think it's a 85% chance it's right. Um, that's what machine learning is. So it's a matter of generating a lot, a lot of data. It's a matter of uh, really getting the, the, the computer power to assign that to, to doing. And the nice thing is it learns along the way. Of course, once you assign, you get a new picture, you add to the database. It's all about adding to the database. At a certain point, once you get the algorithms going, it's about adding to the database. So as far as how far away we are with using this, these kinds of things for projections, I think we're on, we're on the way. Uh, I mean, certainly, um, you know, the more variables come up, the more data you can get. And we can recognize that it helps in the aid of, uh, you know, distinguishing what a good player is and what a good event is versus a bad event. Uh, it, it certainly helps. So we're a little bit away from there, but I, I think we've started the process. I did try a picture-based machine learning experiment with my own picture. The computer crashed. <laughs> <laughs> you said in that part of the discussion that one avenue might be similarity scores, pouring over the huge database of past players, identifying players who are similar to the player you're projecting and getting a more accurate outcome by modeling off those similar players and getting more and more accurate as you add more and more variables to the model. My first thought was, how do we know which aspects of the profile are similar in a way that is actually salient for the projection. Obviously, we're not going to look at eye color or shoe size, and one of the Jeremys mentioned performance on Wednesdays, which also feels like a bit of a random factor. But it raises the question, how do we know which similarities are factors that really affect player performance in a predictive model? Yeah. Well, first of all, by the way, you know, you mentioned like eye color. 
you know, if you find if you found the correlation between eye color and performance, you know, whether it it is causality, right? A correlation doesn't mean causality. Uh, you, you you know your model might actually say that well eye color that's a factor right I mean I, I I didn't I hear that you know people who have light eyes blue eyes don't perform well during the day maybe they don't see the ball well or it's too bright uh you, you never know I I it's funny that you mentioned it you just never know that it actually could be a real factor but you know we're talking about standard you know regression analysis and accuracy scores and there's there's tests for how accurate and you know with with regressions you know the you can test whether a variable is you know is significant how significant it is you know you, you don't want to have too many variables in model but you know the of course every single variable you put in if it's effective does help it a certain way so you know it's about testing you know which which variables are are a factor you know uh, take you know pitch velocity you know we know that the the higher you pitch the more strikeout rate you have it's one of the highest correlated statistics but you know spin rate that's a factor too not as big a factor right and you can test how how big a, a, a match it is by you know regression and other statistical tools. It feels to me like the data we get from the Hawkeye systems in the parks will be much more useful in projecting performance. But of course, most of the players in the database came before those systems were available. So how satisfied are we going to be with modeling based on non-discrete data of the sort that we get from Hawkeye? Yeah, I'm not really that familiar with exactly all the Hawkeye stuff. I mean, I'm, 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 you know, all the guys who work in Major League Baseball and the data guy is a little bit better. Um, you know, uh, uh, again, you know, when you're trying to predict performance, you know, we're we're not predicting, we're not here in predicting what Aaron Judge's exit velocity is going to be. We're here in projecting what his homers are going to be. So, uh, you know, the result, even though Hawkeye has been hasn't been around for all that long, um, you know. The homers have, and the RBIs have, and and the pitcher strikeouts have. So, you know, it, it's okay to to predict uh, some 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 outcomes uh, compared to what we had in the past, because that's you know that's in general what we're we're trying to do. We're we're trying to break down the components based on Hawkeye to project other baseball events. Uh, so, you know, I, I, it's definitely getting better and better. I, I can't tell you exactly, uh, you know, the right way to put things because I don't deal with this on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, it's definitely uh, – it's improved the accuracy, I can tell you that. And you can see that from all of the clubs that, that have used analytics very heavily over the past decade. They tend to do better than the ones that didn't, that's for sure. But earlier we talked about the board game that you and your wife play where it becomes increasingly clear how you – need to proceed if you want to have the best chance to win and everybody at the table figures out that that's the path and it becomes basically just uh, who can get their first kind of race. So if the amount and data and the ability of machine learning or other techniques to improve the projections to the point where they're 90% accurate or 95% accurate or 98% accurate, what is the risk that we're actually going to take all the fun out of the game? Yeah, I know that's a good question. And of course, I didn't really expect to be talking about Ticket to Ride uh, at the beginning of the day here. But, you know, it, it depends on the game and it depends on the things. You know, uh, take a game like chess. Um, you know, we don't have a computer strong enough to say that this is the optimal first move, right? We can't even predict all that far. So playing chess, especially in the human brain, there's still uh, a very big variation between good and bad players. Um, you know, if we're talking about baseball and fantasy baseball, I don't think we're going to get to the 90% accuracy. We're dealing with way too much 
process risk. Uh, things can happen on a day-to-day basis. You're still dealing with parameter risk. We don't know the ins and outs of the players. Do we really know if a player is injured or not? I don't think so. The, the uh, teams are certainly not going to tell us every detail. Uh, do we know if, if, if uh, a player had been working out more? Do we know that if he changes his swing and been working on something? We don't get all the details. So you're not going to get to the 90% level. I mean, talk about a system like Marcel, which just does some basic three-year waiting, age curve, simple league average regression. You know, that gives you some kind of 60% accuracy, which is, which is enormous, by the way, just for that. Um, now we're getting maybe 70 75%. I don't think we're going to get much more than that, right? We're talking about like Pareto, the Pareto rule where, you know, it, it to go a lot it, it is going to take an enormous amount, right? You, you Just a lot of work just gets you a little bit more accurate at this point. So, no, I, I don't think that it's really going to hurt the fun of it I because I don't think we're ever going to get to that ridiculous level. I mentioned like Ticket for Ride. I, I think that I've gotten – far to that level where it does get less fun. But fantasy baseball, no, I don't think so. I don't think we're going to get ever get that accurate. Well, continuing on with some observations about how the advanced analytics affect games, I think, first of all, computers are better chess players than people, and it's partly because the old method of computer chess was to brute force every question. Every time there was a decision to be made, the computer would look at every possible move and assess every possible outcome from those moves and make the optimal choice as a result. Now they're using machine learning in a way that you've been talking about in that they are learning from their own mistakes. They play a game, it doesn't work out, they remember that that, that move was not optimal in that situation, and it becomes a kind of an exponential growth because the more mistakes they make, the fewer mistakes they make in the long run. The other game that's been affected, I think, by computers and machine language and the computer learning is poker. Uh, poker has really changed not just Of course, there's guys who use computers to cheat in online poker, and that's become ubiquitous, and they're trying to figure out ways to block that. But even in-person players at the highest levels, the tournament players, a lot of them are just going about the game by memorizing the optimal plays that the computer has figured out. And it becomes a question of being able to remember the optimal play rather than actually figuring it out for yourself at the poker table. And I think of of an example, if we had a a poker table where everybody was playing just on their own guile and one guy had access to a computer, it would be a lot less fun and it would take a lot more money out of your pocket. Yeah, I agree with with everything you said there, definitely. I mean, a game like chess, of course, there's no luck. The the pieces are there. There is variability in, in poker and, you know, managing variability. I mean, this is what I do at my day job. It's about managing the variability. You know, there's more process risk in that than in poker, perhaps. Uh, and there's a lot more process risk in fantasy baseball. So, yeah, any any time where, where you have computers, they really, really help. And I don't think it's going to take the fun out of it because, you know, there's always a human element. Anytime there's a human element to something where you, where you have in baseball, you're still going to get that. Um, so I'm, I, I think we're okay, Patrick. Well, to be clear, I don't think it's going to be a complete disaster and we're going to lose all the fun out of it right away or in any time soon. Certainly not before I'm too old to play fantasy baseball because uh, I'm taking up all my time with the three-hour walk to the bathroom. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from 
Rotographs, Rotoballer, the Beat the Shift podcast, and the ATC projections. And uh, Ariel, you and your co-host and friend Ruvain Guy on your Beat the Shift podcast in February were talking about closers, and one of the first topics you discussed was not to build a strategy that depends on playing the waiver wire after the draft to find your saves. It's a very popular strategy, so why are you telling people not to use it? Well, I mean, the question is ultimately how to maximize your capital in the fantasy baseball economic environment, right? It's where is the best way to spend your capital that's the most efficient use of your funds? And when you're dealing with a league that has waiver wire pickups, you have capital in two basic forms. You've got draft capital and you've got waiver wire capital. You know, you can, and of course, the round is worth a certain amount, or if you're in an auction, it's a certain dollar amount for your draft. And of course, you've got dollars to spend on fab for the waiver wire. So, you know, which one is more efficient? Should you, for the closers, should you get your saves in the waiver wire? Is that better to, eh, let's just spend a couple hundred bucks out of the thousand? Or is it better to spend a higher draft pick than you're normally used to? And, you know, if you look at last year, I think that every team in the NFBC, every league in the NFBC had somebody or some compilation of the of the uh, players bidding spend something around 30 to 40 percent of their fab budget just on the Toronto Blue Jays situation. I mean, that that, that, that that's that, that's so much you're going to spend a third of, of your budget on the Toronto Blue Jays situation. And they guessed wrong. Right. Was it Merriweather? Was it Romano? Back to Merriweather, back to Romano. Um, to me, that is a very bad use of funds. And especially the way that bullpens are used today, the player on the waiver wire has a much lower chance of being the guy to get saves. And even if he is the guy, there's a, a, shave, a, a saves share these days, right? You're getting a percentage of, of the saves. You're not getting a full season worth. So you're getting much lower hit rate. You're getting much lo- lower bang for your buck. And you're having to spend more on the waiver wire. And by the way... These days with your fab budget, you really should allocate a lot more towards injuries, right, to filling holes because there's more injuries in baseball. So being that you're getting squeezed on the fab, I don't think it's more efficient to do that rather than say, well, you know what? I used to spend my top elite closer in the sixth or seventh round, and now it's got to be the third or fourth. Like the difference between the third and fourth to me to get what's a lot more certainty in closing is worth a lot more than spending 30% of your fab or more on the waiver wire. So it's it's a matter of uh, efficient funds. It's a matter of seeing where I think I'm getting a bigger bang for my buck. And for the case of closers, I kind of think that it's okay to pay that extra premium. And by the way, you're not the only one paying it. Everybody else is paying it also. So relative to everybody else, you're not paying all that much more. Uh, that That's my general reason for why I would rather pay a little bit more in the draft and less on the wire. You discussed paying the price for closers uh, in terms of market pricing versus relative pricing and what you called market premiums. How do these concepts work together to define closer pricing in a particular draft? Market premium in general is the concept that the market adds funds over some inherent value or what you would compute as an inherent value for a certain position or a certain statistic. So if, you know, you compute that as close saves are uh, worth a certain amount, you know, the top closer should really be $18 in an auction, 
but the market is paying 24, well, then you're getting a market premium of six. And for another closer, maybe he's worth 15 and he you're paying 21 and that's worth six. And there's some average market premium for that statistic or the role or something uh, there. And the idea, though, is to say, okay, you know, that's the market premium. So should I not pay it because my numbers say he's worth $6 less? Well, you, you may you may have to pay it. Right? Staves is a statistic. You need saves. If everybody said, we're going to draft only pitchers in the first three rounds and not do hitters, and you say, well, that's crazy. But if everybody's doing it, then if you don't, you won't get any good pitchers. Your pitching will stink. You won't be competitive in a rotisserie league. So, you know, you do have to pay a market premium in general. The idea, though, is not to pay the full market premium. It's to pay a relative market premium and get a discount on that. If everybody is paying $6 more for a closer and you're only paying $3 more, you're getting a relative market discount, right? And the idea is to do that. And by the way, it works on the, on the flip side. Let's say, I don't know, first basemen are cheaper and first basemen, lower first basemen are going $4 less. Well, if you're paying $4 less and everybody else is paying $4 less, you're not really getting a, a discount because everybody's doing it. You want to pay $6 less and get a relative discount compared to what the market premium is going for. So uh, that, that that's true for any position, and it's especially easy to see for closers. Everybody's paying, so it's okay to pay more. You just want to pay less than everybody else. It seems to me, Ariel, in economic terms, that the problem with closers is a certain amount of price inelasticity. And this is going back to Econ 100 and 200 back in university in the olden times. But what I remember of the concept of price inelasticity, which is a situation where the price of goods doesn't affect the demand for them, is that it only applies to necessary goods, like closers in drafts, and it also only applies when there's no substitutes for the necessary goods. So as you get substitutes into the market, then the elasticity improves and prices fall and so forth. Is it possible that we could manage the closers situation, the shortage of safe situation, by finding substitute goods? For example, by focusing on guys who are second place in the bullpen but behind a shaky closer? Can we use an Anthony Bender to beat the economic trap that we find ourselves in with closers? Yeah, I mean, totally. In the case of the saves, you know, you have to compare what, you know, what kind of return are you getting on those top closers versus the return you're getting on middle and closers or closer darts at the bottom. And you have to see which is more efficient. And again, I, I mentioned before, I don't think the waiver wire is the way to go. I think you're much more efficient saying I'm going to lock down Liam Hendricks, uh, you know, compared to that. But that, that's your own assessment of doing that. Um, you know, saves are a category, but, you know, there's no category called rookies. Um, you, you don't ha you don't have to buy rookie. Even if rookies are overpriced, you don't have to buy it. There are substitutions like old boring veterans who are usually at a discount or a second baseman. You have to buy a second baseman, but you don't have to buy an expensive second baseman. You might find that the market premium at the top is not worth paying because you can get a much larger market discount at the bottom for second baseman. And that's really the trick to putting your roster together, is to find where is the most efficient for each position and where you can form and construct your roster to take advantage of market inefficiencies at every single statistic and at every single position. On another February show, you had a special guest, the former big league pitcher Brian Bannister. He was a Met, wasn't he? He did pitch for the Mets, yes. 
Well, he's now the director of pitching for the San Francisco Giants, and boy, they're doing a terrific job. So whatever they're doing is worth looking into. And you talked with him about the role of analytics in pitching assessment, pitching development, and you asked him about the data and analytics that teams use but that we outsiders can't get. What did he tell you about that? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, he seemed to say, it's interesting, he seemed to say that, you know, most of the stuff that you think that you can't get from, from that the teams have, you know, the stuff that's not on Baseball Savant or Brooks Baseball, um, doesn't actually give you anything completely new. It just verifies or validates or even quantifies things that he was thinking of. And he, he mentioned that, you know, he, you know, if you throw a, a knuckleball and it doesn't have any spin on it, and you wouldn't think it would go anywhere because there's no Magnus Force acting on it. But somehow it moves like crazy and it has to do with seam shifted wake. Um, and, you know, he thought of, you know, why and uh, the analytics that you get from the team confirmed it. You know, uh, he mentioned Greg Maddox, who, you know, he used to throw this front door two seamer and it moved like crazy. And he would wondered how in the world does that happen? Well, that's stuff that. You know, you can verify how he does it and, and buy the team stuff. So it's stuff that you would think looks a little bit nutty um, or a little bit out there, and you just confirm it uh, from the data. There's no revolutionary idea of, oh, my God, I found this out from the, this, this other data, uh, and no one ever sees it. You don't get that. It's it's more of the throw this in and, and this idea. Why is it curving that much? Should you know? I think that horizontal movement on a slider is better than vertical, or whatever you think. Oh, now this data confirms it. So uh, notions are confirmed and quantified more more from the excess data that you can't get any, anywhere else than anything else. Well, I'll be darned. Eye color and shoe size do matter. <laughs> we talked earlier about building effective player models to predict performance, but you asked Brian Bannister about studying the great players to find success for current players but also to look at outliers. What did he tell you about these outliers? Well, he's referring to uh, really great players. You know, you look at great players and what did they do, right? Don't learn from a player that stinks. Learn from a player that did something totally out there, had a tremendous swing strike rate, had a, a great break on their ball and it moved. And, and you look at it and you reverse engineer what they did, being that it was great, and then you pick up those traits and you can apply it and teach other new players or, for him, players that are new to the organization, right? It's it's the reverse engineering of greatness is really what he was referring to. I wonder if it's possible to look at players who don't do well uh, and use them as models in the, the reverse sort of uh, approach, saying, here's a guy who isn't succeeding, don't do what he's doing. Um, yeah, uh, obviously. Uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, the mechanics that they work on there is uh, avoiding stuff that doesn't work. Um, hey, listen, there's, it's a very involved job, and there's a lot of things to learn at, at every single stage. Certainly, of course, you know you have to have enough talent to do something. Right? We don't. I can't be a major league or player. Uh, I don't have that talent. You can show me the best way to throw a pitch, but... At the end of the day, I ain't going to help your team. Uh, but, yeah, there's a lot to be involved. And what do you have queued up for the next couple of weeks of the Beat the Shift podcast? Well, I don't want to give, give away too much, but uh, we're going to have uh, uh, Greg Jewett on to talk about uh, closers and bullpen situations. We'll do a mock draft that uh, people really enjoy of, you know, just going through, uh, you know, hey, how we would think and the decision makings were there. And, you know, we'll do some bold predictions uh, for the season. And uh, 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, the the draft season could be a little bit longer. We don't know how long this will last, so uh, we'll see. But you'll you'll get those kinds of things uh, on the on our show in the next couple of weeks. Any special guests lined up? None that I can reveal to you, uh, other than uh, Greg Jewett's going to be on the show this week. Why wouldn't you reveal them? It's marketing. It's promotion. You should be shouting these names from the rooftops. Well, there's <laughs> different reasons. There's also some questions of what day they can appear and all that. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to overpromise anything here. But uh, just uh, check check my feed. Check the uh, beat underscore shift underscore pod feed, and uh, you'll, you'll see uh, who's lined up. And uh, feel free to submit mailbag questions as we go. We, we love questions from listeners. Some of them are really great. When am I going to be on? Oh yeah, we'll we'll have to get you on. Uh, we'll uh, we'll take this offline and we'll we'll get you on a date. It's always a great show, Patrick. You've been one of our most frequent guests on the show. Well, I love doing the show, and I'll bet I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, it's such a relief and so much fun to be the guest on the show rather than the host with all the responsibilities. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's good to uh, perform in, in both. Uh, listen, you do a great job being the host, so uh, definitely keep doing that part, and we love having you as a guest. So keep doing that as well. Well, Ariel, this has been very interesting so far, as I knew it would be. So let's take a break, uh, get a couple of promos in, then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, measures of confidence, Wander Franco, and your boons and banes. All right. Ariel Cohen writes for Rotographs, Rotoballers. He's the podcast host of The Sleeper and the Bust, and he's the creator of the ATC Projection System. He'll be back in a few seconds, but right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, co-general manager Brent Hershey has the delayed 2022 preseason plan for the Baseball HQ site. In Facts and Flukes performance validation, analyst Greg Pyron looks at five national leaguers, including Juan Soto. I hear he's really good. Eddie Rosario and Corey Knabel. In the Buyer's Guides columns, columnist Stephen Nickrand digs into 2022 starting pitcher gambles, and bullpens columnist Doug Dennis, he'll be on the show March 25th, by the way, does likewise for relievers. And coming soon, Matt Cederholm's always interesting all-value team for 2022. Some interesting names there. And those are just five articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. And with the start of training camps, it's all systems go. We'll have news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. There are those buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, Injury analysis in Matt Cedarholms' column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers, potential faders, and all kinds of indicators for hitters and pitchers. Listen, add it all up. You get expert content, plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And it's all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, Rotoballers, and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. And, of course, he's the creator and manager of the ATC Projection System. Ariel, welcome back to Part 2. All right, glad to be back. 
In the blurb that accompanied release of your projections on Sportsline, you really liked Wander Franco for 2022. And I have to say, so did Gene McCaffrey earlier this week. What's your take on Wander Franco and how high would you or will you reach for him in 2022 drafts? So I actually didn't write that blurb. Uh, I, I think that Sportsline was promoting my uh, my projections, and uh, you know it, it seemed like a catchy thing. Get this uh, rookie, uh, but you know in general I do like Wander Franco compared to other rookies that I've liked in the past. I mean I project him in a in a fifteen team five by five player to be about twenty dollars. Although the market is going considerably over that, he's going in the fifth round of drafts. Um, I don't. I actually don't expect to own any shares of Wander Franco this year, and it, it's not because I, I don't like the player. It's also because that shortstop range at that price point is quite deep. There are a lot of very comparable players, uh, some veteran players who are maybe even more stable and more proven. And there's just a whole quantity. There's maybe ten shortstops or ten, I should say, middle infielders at that price point that are interchangeable. So I'll go with a later one and defer a pick. Um, but you know, Wander Franco has a lot of great tools. I think the more sure, the more surest tool I can say about him is the hit tool. Um, he's a he's a guy who's going to hit for a very high average. We're talking something close to two ninety or even higher, and he covers a lot of different categories. He'll certainly pitch in with the homers, stolen bases. Um, you know, he'll help you. I think the power might take a little time for him to come. Steel depends on what the Rays let him run, but uh, that hit tools there. And the Rays, who don't, normally don't really uh, give out a lot of money, they signed him long term and, and paid him. So, uh, you know, you can be assured that the Rays know what they're doing. You certainly can. You also mentioned that you had about a $20 production value for Wander Franco in 2022. And then you said, well, he's going in round five, and that's too high. How do you correlate dollar values with draft rounds? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, I, I take a look at the distribution and I use my Z-score formula to, to see what it is. You know, we're talking, I don't know, 30, uh, mid-30s in the first round and high 20s in the second round and mid-20s in the third. And, you know, there's a curve there. Uh, you know, I, I, obviously, like, we compute an exact amount based on the Z-scores, but, you know, the that's the rough gauge. $20 player should be, you know, somewhere, you know, fourth round, fifth round, sixth round, something like that. In a Rotoballer article, there was a very interesting draft board, which you color coded the players by risk rather than the usual color coding by position. So let's talk about risk. It's really important and it's fundamental to what you're doing with ATC projections. How do you measure and present risk? You know, in terms of what ATC projections does, is because ATC looks at a lot of different projections, we can get a measure of how different the projections are from one another, from one another. For certain players, projections are pretty much all in agreement on an overall value for the player, and for some players, projections are really widely spread apart. And my research, my research has shown that the more widely spread apart, uh, in general. At the end of the year, their expectation of value comes out lower than you think. And the opposite is true with low-risk players, uh, with low differentiation in the projections. You actually can, can improve on what the expected value is. So uh, what, what this does is it measures uh, what's called parameter risk, and that's the uncertainty of what the true talent is. You know, Obviously, we mentioned process risk. Anything can happen in a sample size of games, but... The question is, is a player a 30-home-run 30 30 run player? Is he a 25-home-run player? 
each proje- projection system will say, well, his expectation is this, expectation is 27, 29. And that's a measure of their true talent. And the uncertainty of what a true talent is is known as parameter risk. And that's what the ATC projectional uh, standard deviation metrics uh, go to help you. And uh, to the extent that the research has shown that it's correlated somewhat with uh, with end-of-year performance compared to expectation, it really pays to pay attention to it. Well, it's a very interesting approach. I know I've talked about it with you in the past here on Baseball HQ Radio. And uh, once again, I want to commend you for developing this concept because I think it's really, really important. Outside the first round, who are some of the top 100 players whose projections you determined to be lower in risk? Yeah, take a guy like Ryan Mountcastle. You know, I know that we know that the fence is moving back, and yes, his overall production will get a hit, and, and you know, he'll lose some four expected homers. But assuming all that, projections pretty much align. They all see him as, you know, having whatever batting average and and, and hitting tools. And, uh, you know, projections are very aligned on him. And that gives me a lot of safety in thinking that, you know what, Mountcastle actually might hold a lot of his value or gain. Um, Alex Verdugo, uh, he's a many path to player value. Um, he gets some of the fainter categories like batting average and runs, and he's not a zero in steals. Um, and... Projections are fairly certain of what his true talents are in those, so he's pretty low risk. And what I thought was most interesting was uh, Will Smith, the pitcher. And I would say that hitters, you get more agreement in projections than pitchers in general. Pitchers, especially ERA, can really vary widely. But for Will Smith, projections really agree very much. And especially for him, a lot of his value comes in saves. And projections really see Smith as getting almost all the saves in Atlanta. And so because of that, projections are really in alignment. It gives me a little bit more confidence to say, yeah, Will Smith is a top closer because we're sure he's going to get some saves. And what about some players who are higher in risk? For players uh, after the first round, we're talking guys who you probably would consider Justin Verlander, Bobby Witt. Uh, Verlander, because of returning from injury, Witt, who's a guy who's uh, you know rookie, unknown, but being priced very highly. Then you got guys like Robbie Ray, where, okay, he did that last year, but how confident are we we're going to do it? Or a guy like Kenley Jansen, who some projections have him as a 40-saves guy and some have him as a zero-saves guy because he currently doesn't have a role as a free agent. Uh, so you get that. You know, there's actually a lot of interesting disagreements in the top two rounds. Um, Walker Bueller, Julio Urias. Uh, those are guys who projections really differ. Some projections have them all with over four ERAs, and some have them with a low three ERAs because uh, those are players who have outperformed some of their uh, pitching met- uh, peripherals for a while now. Their Sierra is you know, a run higher than, than their actual ERA. So projections, a lot of them who rely on that regress them a lot, and those who don't, don't, and you get a lot of variability. So it, it's very interesting to see which players, for very various different reasons, have a lot of this uncertainty. You also have a concept called the interskew, which identifies how the underlying projections vary, whether they're mostly above or below the median. Which players came out on the good side of this measure? Yeah, I mean, for uh, and again with with skew, it's it's not that they differ; it's how they differ. And my research has shown that if you have all the projections above, and there's one outlier projection below 
that is really bringing down the average, but the median, the wisdom, the crowds are above, it's generally a good sign that the player is going to do more, and research has shown that. So players who come out on the positive side of that, where you have just the negative skew of the outlier low, guys like Aaron Judge, who uh, actually there might be some more interesting uh, upside to him because you know that one outlier might not be right. Guy like Cody Bellinger as well. Listen, his his 2019 MVP season that's still in play. Shane Bieber is a guy also who might uh, outget uh, his expectations. And and on the the other side where guys who have a lot of positive skew, guy like you Darvish, uh, Lucas Giolito, Luis Castillo. Those are three guys who, you know, a- average maybe propped up by some outlier high projection that maybe you would be a little bit of caution because they the the average the uh, bulk of the projections are below what the average shows. You also discuss players' intra-standard deviation, which measures the dispersion of their value across the categories. So a player with value across the board is less likely to crater your overall performance of your team if one of those categories comes up short. Uh, Who are a few players who have intra-SDs that indicate a good dispersion of value? Yeah, and and that's true. I mean, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that if a player is hurt and they are really well spread out in categories, doesn't really affect you tremendously in any one category, right? Obviously, if you lose a high-value player like Bo Bichette, sure, you're losing a tremendous player. That's going to hurt you. But it doesn't hurt you in any one category as much as the others. Right? The, the, the more dispersed you are, take a guy like Kyle Tucker in the first round. Very low dispersion. He has a lot of steals, but not all that much compared to the number of homers or compared to the RBIs. So losing him doesn't threaten you for the rest of the draft. Um, other guys who are lower, who are, by the way, great building blocks. If you take a uh, a player with a low dispersion here uh, of categories, they're easy to build. You know, who's the next player you take in a draft? You don't have to balance anything. It's pre-balanced. Austin Hayes, Luis Urias, uh, Nate Lowe, Avisail Garcia, those are some of the lowest intra-SD risks where, you know, you take them and you're already balanced. You don't got to do any much more. I suspect closers would be high on this measure because so much of their value is focused or concentrated in saves. But other than closers, who are some players who have the intra-SD scores that present riskier profiles with their values concentrated in fewer categories like closers? And you're spot on about the closers. And, And by the way, that's okay. We know that closers have their value inherently in one category. And that makes them, of course, very risky. If you lose a closer, that's a huge blow to your saves, right? But that's okay. You still need the closers. Uh, guys like like that, uh, other ones, uh, stolen base guys, right? Same deal. Mondesi, Starling Marte, Miles Straw, Tommy Edmond. You also get a guy like Pete Alonzo, who a lot of his value is concentrated in the homers. And on the pitching side, a guy like Herman Marquez, Luis Castillo, where a lot of the value is tied to strikeouts. So, you know, you're losing a guy like that probably is a little bit of an offsetting uh, relationship on your strikeouts on your team, although it probably doesn't do any harm on on your ratios. Well, it's very, very interesting stuff, and I advise all our listeners to find the articles that you've written about these risk variation measures, as well as just looking at the projections themselves. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, Rotoballers, the Beat the Shift podcast, and of course, those ATC projections. And Ariel, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. These are players who are good values, not so good values. So let's start with your boons. These are players who look like they do present good value given where they're going in drafts or what they're costing in auctions. And uh, let's start with the American League batter who could be a boon. 
Yeah, let's go with uh, Jonathan Scope, who's got a really low interprojectional standard deviation at just a dollar thirty cents. Got a negative skew. His intraprojectional standard deviation is really low, so he's pretty much got the trifecta of ATC volatility metrics, and his overall value is way above where he's going in draft. We're talking about a bankable twenty to twenty-five homers. Contact rate really good at 80%. He's shown batting averages between 260 and 270, which is a plus these days. He bats somewhere in the middle of the lineup, so he's going to have those uh, run production stats. Uh, I kind of like him. He's really safe, and he's going cheap, and he's eligible both at first and second, which is very, very helpful these days as well. And how about a National League batter who's a boon? Let's go with Adam Duval, who led Major League Baseball last year in RBIs. Uh, it, most people don't even realize that, but he's actually one of the best bargains all around compared from ATC to what the market is going. We're talking about a guy who hits, you know, we're talking about 38 homers each season. Um, I'm only projecting him for 33 homers, which he's done in the past many times. Now, his biggest problem is the batting average, but it's 230 bad. It's not like 210 Miguel Sano bad. Um, so he's a guy that is just so cheap for the price that if you bolt up a little bit on the steals and uh, batting averages, and not again, not to the extent of getting like a like a Joey Gallo or getting uh, to the extent of, of uh, Miguel Sano at the batting average, but just a little bit higher, he is a very affordable guy who can really... I mean, if you're down in a draft and you're down and you're low on RBIs and homers, he instantly fixes you. Uh, and, and really, really late. He's going like in the 17th round. So Adam Duvall. Over to the mound we go. How about an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Let's go with Joe Ryan, who, uh, bold prediction, will be the best pitcher on the Twins this year. ATC actually does not usually like the rookies. So to see uh, a young guy come up really, really high on the ATC compared to what Mark is, that is very interesting to me. Um, ATC really does like him. He had a .79 whip in 27 innings last year. Yes, it was BABIP-aided, but he does have a 12% swinging strike rate, which, you know, in the minors, it was actually higher. It was 15%, which is enormous. His walk rate is small. That's why I'm confident, because he has a low walk rate, 5% walk rate, so he's going to keep the whip down. He has His biggest problem is he has a bit too many fly balls, uh, so because of that, I don't think you can expect a fantastic ERA. I think it's going to go north of four, but we're talking a good whip with just a four ERA, and he is getting strikeouts. Uh, he struck out more than a batter in inning last year, so I think that it's a nice price for Joe Ryan. Well, mind you, calling somebody the best starting pitcher on Minnesota's rotation in 2022 it's kind of like calling somebody the best ballet dancer in Topeka, Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Who's a National League Pitcher boon for you. Let's go with Joe Musgrove, who struck out over 200 batters last year, if you didn't uh, know that already. Uh, you know, he's going, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's par value, but again, relative discount. It's a relative market discount, right? Because starters are going much more, but he's not really going all that much. Uh, again, I love the whip. Uh, to me, when you want to build a fantasy team, you want to build off of the whip because you can always fill in with a strikeout somewhere here and there. 
You can get two-star pitchers, but if you have that whip base, you can bring it around. 1.08 whip last year. Now, he was much better last year in the first half than the second half. I think he was just tired in the end. I'm going to chalk it up to tired, not underperformance. And by the way, with all the underperformance, his ERA was 3.18 last year. So he was enormous in the first half. And still in a ball, good ballpark. He can still win a lot of games. Low interprojectional volatility. And to be honest, in a short season, he's probably even better. So if that has any effect of it, that will make him even better. Joe Musgrove. Let's go over to your Baines. These are players you think are probably going to be a little bit uh, overvalued at drafts, or overpaid for in auctions, and not present the kind of value you expect for the, for the cost of it. Uh, again, we'll start with an American League batter. Who's a Bane? Jared Kalanick. Uh, as a Mets fan, I'm obliged to say this, of course. Uh, but no, uh, Jared Kelenic, um, I he batted 181 last year. He's not going to do that again, but I don't see him as a batting average plus. I think he's going to struggle to get to 250. He might even struggle to get to 240. I think like the highest projections I have for him is like 2, 245 or something like that. Um, you know, he does not do enough running to really forgo his flaws. He's not a 20 stolen base guy, like a 10 to 12 stolen base guy. It helps you, but not all that much. Homers, will he get to 20? Maybe. So, you know, you're dealing with eh, eh, and poor batting average. That's a pain. And you think, well, maybe I get him a little bit later in draft, take a chance. He's going in the ninth round. My God. There are guys who are going later that I'd rather take for similar stats like Akil Badu, Ian Happ. Ramon Laureano, even if he's not playing a full season, or Mark Canna, these are guys who are similarly profiled in stats, but way better, much less batting average risk, going way later in drafts. There's absolutely no reason to take Jared Kelenic whatsoever. And if you're confused about the mention of the Mets, uh, Jared Kelenic was drafted by the Mets, Ariel's favorite home <laughs> team, and uh, then he was traded to Seattle. Was that the Robinson Cano deal? Thank you for reminding me again. But, yes, it was the Robinson Cano deal where we got Robinson Cano for Jared Kalanick, who uh, I mean, he, he probably will be good in the future, but I think there's going to be some bumps in the road this year, uh, especially in that batting average category. And for a National League Bane batter, I don't expect you're going to choose Robinson Cano despite our discussion of it. Who's your National League batter Bane? <laughs> that would be funny if I picked Robinson Cano. Uh, I, I I would not want to select him in my draft either, but let me go with Jazz Chisholm, who maybe uh, to you out there think that, what, Jazz Chisholm? He's awesome, dude. Well, first of all, he's going in the fifth round of the NFBC, and my pricing indicates he should be closer to about the 10th or 11th round. Um, projections don't agree at all. I mean, I have some projections that have him as a 10-homer, 10-steals guy. I have some projections that have him as a 30-homer, 30-steals guy. Way all over the place. The guy has a 30% strikeout rate. That batting average is not going anywhere. I mean, he had a 248 average last year. He had a 161 average the year before. I think he'll struggle to get anywhere close to 250. And, you know, you can't steal bases if you aren't on base. So, yes, this is a guy with high upside. But this is a guy who has downside. He can literally be in AAA in the mid-year if he really performs poorly. The, the, uh, the, the Marlins do have other middle infield options. So uh, I just don't like the risk. And the fifth round, not interested. And as I mentioned, there's so many other similarly valued players who are going at that place. There's no reason to bump up Chaz Chisholm at all. Over to the mound again. How about an American League pitcher who's a Bane? 
Let's go with uh, Dylan Cease. Uh, a lot of people are very high on him, but he's a player that my projection model is just way, way lower than everybody else's. He's going all the way up in the fifth round and right even higher than a guy like Joe Musgrove, who I uh, just talked about before. I think there's no guarantee that he pitches to a sub-4 ERA. Gives up lots of homers, and actually he, he was lucky last year in not giving up homers, and he still had almost a 4 ERA. He's got a very low ground ball rate. We're talking about close to 30%. That does not bode well for the ERA, so he's prone to the blips, and the blips will keep his ERA from being elite. He also has a very high walk rate. We're talking 10% last year. And by the way, that was the lowest it's been for him. He's been up to like 13%. Um, ATC is projecting a 1.25 whip. I think he's going to actually go higher than that. Um, I have no confidence in that. And I do not like taking the over four ERA high whip guys with strikeouts. Yes, the strikeouts are wonderful. But that kind of profile is much more easily replicated on the waiver wire than the low whip profile. So because of the not uniqueness of his situation, I don't see much value. I I call him the Chris Archer type, like guys who just blow people away but walk a lot and give up runs. It just doesn't help your roster, especially shallow leagues. Like there's much of a less of a reason to to roster Dylan Cease. If you're in a deep league, sure. But fifth round right now, I'm really, really think that's way too over the price for what you should pay. In both of my earlier drafts, I thought Dylan Cease went quite a bit too early. And my concern, in addition to what you mentioned, is that uh, the park is very home run friendly, and that's exactly playing into Dylan Cease's weakness. So from that point of view, uh, I wasn't 100% interested, and he certainly went far earlier than I expected uh, or was willing to pay for. Uh, Finally, who's a National League pitcher who's a bane? Another one that people uh, are going to uh, regard as what? Sandy Alcantara. I'm, I'm picking on the Marlins here. But, you know, Sandy Alcantara. Now, again, this, this is not a guy who's going to zero. Um, but people are drafting him like a top 10 pitcher. He's going the third round in drafts. Uh, but I don't think he's a top 10 pitcher. He has really overperformed his metrics for years. His career ERA was about 3.5. His career Sierra, 4.5. Um, his career BABIP has been 270, which is quite lucky. His swing strike rate up to this year has been 10%, which is actually, eh, it's okay, but it's not great. And in the first half it was of last year, it was 12%, which is getting better, but not elite. And then, of course, he had that ridiculous 15% swinging strike rate after that. So, you know what are you doing in the in the in, in last year in the first half of the season his K minus BB was fourteen percent that's actually really meh and then it jumped to twenty three percent in the second half so essentially you're paying a third round price for a guy who has performed well in a half a season I do not think you should invest a third round pick for your pitcher for your pitcher as your eighth pitcher in a half a season worth of good performance it's just not smart could he be great. Sure. Is he going to go to zero? No. I think if I wanted to draft him as my 15th best pitcher, sure. But to draft him as the 10th, which is a very large gap in value you have to give up, uh, I don't have an interest in that. So overvalued Sandy Alcantara, but definitely a good pitcher uh, that is going to be reliable. Uh, just, Just the price is way too high for him. And we should point out that's the definition of a bane. We're not saying that the pitcher is bad. We're saying that he's not worth the price it takes to capture him at drafts or in auctions, and that's a different thing. And before we go on, Ariel, I'd like to ask you, you mentioned that Alcantara has consistently outperformed his metrics over a 
period of years. And that makes me wonder, at what point do you think that when we see a guy who outperforms his metrics year after year, we have to throw up our hands and admit this is just a guy who outperforms his metrics? Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I, I think that uh, when you're when you're dealing with over five years of outperforming metrics, that probably is enough to say. Like a guy like Kyle Hendricks, who had done that for five years. Remember, like Matt Cain used to really outperform it. I think when you get to that kind of level, then there is something to it. Um, I think under under that, you know, even within three years, there's going to be random noise. Remember, you know, if you just say that, you know, 50% of the people in the world are unlucky and 50% are lucky, and you say, well, if you do that two years in a row, well, then 25% get, you know, can be both lucky and lucky in two years in a row. And if you do that again for a third year and you multiply that probability of 50%, you got 12%. And just by numbers, there's always going to be a few people that are going to be consistently lucky, even though they really, you know, at any point could be bad, right? Luck, just from a small sample size, you're going to have people who are continually lucky. So when you get to five years, I think, in baseball, then I get, think you get to the point where they're probably overperforming. They're probably outperforming metrics, and they probably have something to it. But like in the case of Kyle Hendricks, you know, it's pinpoint control, and if a little bit goes awry, that changes the whole equation, and you know, Hendricks really was terrible last year. So, um, yeah, a little bit of both, a little bit of both there, but five years to me is really the threshold I like to see before I say the guy is, is just not lucky. That's just who he is. And going back to the poker analogy, there are, of course, many professional players who routinely outperform the cards that they're dealt because they're expert at managing the game, at managing their finances, at managing the bets, and at the psychological aspects. Yeah, no, I mean, those guys are skilled at managing luck, uh, which, which is in a skill of itself. I mean, poker, for people, this is not luck. It, it actually is a skill event. Like, if you had to put uh, uh, games into different into different tiers of is it more luck or more not certainly chess is not poker is actually on the skill level because managing luck is a skill i do that at, listen i do that in insurance i don't know which house is going to blow up i don't know which car is going to get into a crash but we know that on the average it's going to have x amount so managing risk is managing luck is a skill in of itself and poker to me qualifies as a skill game i think you're right but in my reading over the years I think I've learned that uh, there's a spectrum of skill versus luck, and you have games like chess we mentioned earlier, uh, Go, checkers, anything where all the information is available to both players, and they call that a game of perfect information. Right. And then right. you get to card games like poker and bridge and whist and and games like that where there's a great element of skill, but there's still that element of luck. Poker, too, of course, where... You can be the right. best player in the world, and some days you're just not going to win because the cards didn't fall your way. Yep, that's right. And, you know, when you're playing with other people, uh, it's good to have a little bit of an element of luck because it levels the playing field. I mean, when I play poker with my friends here, there's some really crappy players who come to my game, and they still win sometimes. So this way they enjoy it. If they kept losing every single time of certain I mean, if they were going to play me chess and they're much worse than me, they'll never win a game, really. But in poker, you know, they're going to win every so often, and it makes it more fun. So I like games that uh, uh, involve controlling a little bit of the element of the luck and uh, where everybody has a chance to win sometime. It's nice. And blackjack, for people who are still following along, is a game of mostly luck. I think it's towards the luck end of the spectrum. But there is an element of skill, especially if you can count cards. 
And uh, and Patrick, can I add in another game that's like that? How about fantasy baseball? That's a game. That's an exact game where I think that the better players perform better in the long run. And you know, if I'm a good player and I don't win every year, it's not because I'm not a good player. It's because there's a large element of luck. And I'm okay with finishing second and third and fourth, but I'll win every so often also if I'm a good player. And the people who are not as good, they'll win every so often too, but they'll usually finish poorly. So I think that's a great example to really come full circle on on the 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 uh, topics that we're talking about here with luck and skill. And it's fantasy baseball in a nutshell. You're absolutely right. But I will throw in this proviso. The skill luck spectrum, I think, depends to some degree on the quality of opposition. So in games where you're Ariel Cohen and you're in a league with a bunch of guys who play very casually, we would expect that your skill would lead to positive outcomes for you more often than if you were in leagues where you're just one of 12 or 15 expert level players who are at the table, in which case I think luck starts to play more and more of a role in it. Since you're all pretty good at optimizing your rosters, what it comes down to is the luck of the game that the players on the field perform or underperform or overperform. Yeah, and uh, not to get super technical, but uh, if you take like an ELO rating that measures, you know, it's a it's a it's a jump metric where you know if you win against a good player, you a really good player, then it jumps more than if you win against a crappier player. Um, you know, you would see that. You know, you can you and it's okay. You can if when you're you're expected to do that. If you're playing against a group of really good players, you don't expect to win more the time than you do against a, a, a worse player pool who is playing in, in a league with you, and that's okay. Uh, and uh, check out ELO rating. It's a fascinating, fascinating metric. They use it in chess, but you can use it in fantasy baseball too. I've actually developed ELO ratings for the poker players who play in my home game, uh, which is interesting. Um, the top ELO rater is actually a woman, which is uh, which is really cool. she she uh, she's great. She really crushes everybody, and you don't see it coming. So uh, ELO rating, really fun stuff. I have heard of ELO ratings, and I actually think I remember seeing somebody who tried to apply ELO ratings to fantasy baseball experts in experts leagues and and made a a table of results. And uh, all I remember about it really is that Fred Zinke was very high on the list because he has been extremely successful in these fantasy experts leagues. And by the way, I didn't mean to say that uh, the women who comes to my poker game, being that uh, you know women are not good in general, uh, just that there aren't that many women that play poker uh, and who come to my game. So uh, the fact that she comes and she's the best person there, that's that's unique. Uh, there are tremendous amount of fantastic women players. I wasn't wasn't trying to say that at all. Uh, but uh, she comes and just sneaks in and you know she beats all the guys. So kudos to her. Well, Ariel, I don't know if you know about this book, but uh, a woman named Maria Konnikova, she's a psychology professor, PhD in psychology, and she decided that she was going to become a professional poker player because she thought that she could learn enough about the skills of the game, the basic skills of the game, to really be able to take advantage of her advantage in psychology. Of course, there's a lot of psychology in poker. You're looking for tells, you're looking for behavior patterns, and so forth. And she thought she could use that skill to combine with as much actual poker playing skill as she could manage to learn. And she wrote about it in a book called The Big Bluff. And it's a, it's a really interesting thing. And she did become a professional poker player, and she actually won a tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, poker is a game about psychology more than anything else. Absolutely. The book, once again, called The Big Bluff by Maria Konnikova. Well, 
Ariel, I was expecting this to be interesting and fun. Uh, once again, you've uh, outshone our projections for you. And uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Ariel Cohen. Yeah, you can read my stuff over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer. My ATC projections are on both of those sites, plus CBS Sportsline as well. Um, you can listen to my podcast called the Beat the Shift podcast. I do with the co-host Ruven Guy. Uh, we focus a lot about strategy, fantasy baseball strategy. So check it out. And you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. And we should mention, of course, that uh, Ruvain Guy, also an injury expert. He's a medical professional, and he does a terrific job at assessing player injuries and estimating how long they're going to be out, what the effects of the injury might be when they come back, that kind of thing. It's, it's really terrific. And, of course, Ariel, you've been really terrific again. I knew you would be. Thanks very much for helping us out on Baseball HQ Radio, and I hope we get to talk to you again soon during the season. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Patrick. Wishing you a fantastic season. Hope it starts soon, and all the best. Ariel Cohen writes for Rotographs and Rotoballers. He's the host of the Sleeper in the Bust podcast, and he runs the ATC Projection System. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number six of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday Expert Edition, Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, Rotoballers, the Sleeper in the Bus podcast, and the ATC projection system. Ariel is an excellent fantasy baseball analyst, a great guy, and a real thought leader in the whole area of projection systems and how they ought to work. He does a lot of updating, a lot of improving his projection system, and he's just really fun to talk to about it. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please do tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday, when our Tuesday Tout Edition features Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and SiriusXM. And then we'll have a show next Friday, our first news and comment edition of 2022, featuring National League News with Harold Nichols, American League News with Ray Murphy, plus Alex Becky's first frequent flyer of the season, and my first extra innings commentary. It's all coming up next week on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Tuesday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.